This fellow Ronaldo is a cod. Arsene Wenger has been in Japan for a year. He doesn't know anything about English football. I will love it if we beat them. This is football heritage. Con Giovanni, yeah, incredible. Dribble, 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 dribble. If you don't know the answer to that question, then I think you're, you, you, are, you are an ostrich. While there is no football, there is still football news coming through. It was announced Mick McCarthy has managed his final game as Ireland manager, with Stephen Kenny now in the role with immediate effect. Hello and welcome to the Total Football Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Hart, and joining me is Andrew Conway. Hello, Declan. Andrew, is this how you envisaged Kenny finally taking over the role? Not really. It's the same kind of idea. We'd have a summer off from international football, from the Irish point of view at least. And Stephen Kenny would swoop in fairly in a underwhelming way. Would get rid of Robbie Keane from his immediate team. I don't know if he's getting sacked altogether or if he's going to be moved to the you know, 21s. Maybe that's a better place for him at this point in his coaching career. And yeah, and Stephen Kenny would take charge and not say a great deal. And we won't hear much about it until the first match, which I don't know what that will be at this point. Whether I, do, I will. If if you can imagine if they could reschedule football for the autumn, would they put the playoffs the very first match or would they wait and like wait for the winter or wait for next year sometime to play that playoff? I don't know. Yeah, I wonder do they just wait till next March uh, and do it then and maybe cancel international breaks as a way of freeing up uh, room in the in the calendar for the club game to kind of get a bit of room yeah very possibly like the 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 talks have been going about at the moment was three to five matches a week uh <laughs> to finish off the league campaigns of the various european leagues if they do that very likely i'd say they'd be looking to cut as much fat as possible from the season and i wouldn't be surprised if for instance there was no league cup at the very least in in england england for instance next season and Beyond that, I'd be very surprised if, bar the big cup competitions, bar the FA Cup, bar the Coupe de France, uh, there would be very few uh, cup competitions next season as well. Presuming it all goes swimmingly in the next few months and things get back to normal, which is a big assumption, I think, at this point in time. Yeah, like it is. It is weird. Like every week, we could have the conversation of what could, what route do we have back to football? But it just seems every week it does change, and so yeah. there's really no point in discussing it at all until it becomes a bit clearer. Which could be, you know, two three weeks. It could be two three months. We yeah. we really don't know. Could be Christmas. Yeah, uh, which would be really bizarre. And yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I suppose then you mentioned Robbie Keane. Like I heard that he's negotiating with the FAI, whatever that even really means. Like because we have an interim CEO at the moment in Gary well, Owens. Yeah, who was. And a, then I um, heard that um, Keith Andrews and Damien Duff will be a part of Stephen Kenny's backroom staff with yeah. John O'Shea going to the under twenty ones. Yeah. Uh, as as far as I know, Keith Andrews had been working cl- closely with Stephen Kenny already, so that's just a standard promotion uh, or a standard move that would have been always expected. And then Damien Duff would have been a promotion, basically, from... Was he working with the under-16s and his work with Celtic as well? Um, that kind of... You know, he, he's been fast-tracked for that, it seems. He, he, he's impressed, I think, by all accounts uh, at both club and international level in the way that maybe other coaches, for instance, the uh, assistant manager in Middlesbrough who were teetering close to relegation in the championship the last time I checked uh, where Robbie Keane is currently assistant manager so I, I can see that they kind of went for an upgrade there in the coaching stakes yeah like it is quite interesting because obviously this time last year if you'd said Stephen Kenny will get to be in charge of the playoffs and 
you know, he'll take charge after that, which we already knew. I would have said that's great. Mick McCarthy's not had the best tenure mm. in his six, seven games or whatever it was in charge. Uh, like, it, it, as far as second reigns go, it was incredibly underwhelming. Uh, but uh, do you think we'll look back uh, at this Mick McCarthy reign in any way of fondness in, in five, ten years' time? Uh, possibly, but probably not for what went on on the field. It'd probably be more for what went on off the field in terms of the massive changes at the FAI, the fact that the corruption, alleged corruption, alleged, you know, mis- misdirection of funds, misappropriation of funds, poor management, fraudulent behaviour, all that alleged stuff that went on in the FAI um, that came out under Mick McCarthy's tenure. And it, it didn't really affect what was going on on the field. It didn't really have a negative impact upon the team, upon people's, at least from uh, the, the footballing side of things, it didn't negatively impact people's per- perception of the football team, which I think is a positive. I think Mick was very much part of that. He kind of kept the ball rolling, kept the, the matters focused on the football. The football itself was unforgettable. As you said, it was underwhelming. It wasn't, I don't think, immensely underwhelming. I think the last... It was slightly better than the last so many years under Trapp and Martin O'Neill and under Steve Staunton before that, uh, where there was no real hope. There was no... Everyone was stuck in the rut. Everyone knew the way things were going. I think Mick kind of continued that in in a way, but at the same time, we had this kind of... It, it, it may not ever become this, but we have the light at the end of the tunnel that is Stephen Kenny and his the way he talks about football, the way he, he wants to play football, the way he wants to you know, play a more modern possession orientated game to promote the, the the youngsters to not only do that but also promote the a, a more attractive side of play, which is something we probably haven't seen since the days of John Giles being in charge of the Irish team thirty, nearly forty years ago at this point, where, you know, players of the likes of Liam Brady were allowed to express themselves. I think Ireland have been very functional and industrial in the time since then and I think it's it's not without you know, you can you can complain all you want about the Danish coach. Was it last last year or the last playoffs that we had against Denmark, where he talked about the British style of play that the Republic of Ireland has, and we had that reputation deservedly, I think, over the last thirty or so years. Even with times when Mick McCarthy played attractive football with good players, the likes of Damien Duff, the likes of Robbie Keane, the likes of Roy Keane, we still had that bit of nerve and a bit of boringness underneath you know play the ball long play it in a straight line don't worry about uh, passing the ball out from the back just he'd give it back to the keeper give it to the centre half and they'll boot it down the line and someone will chase after it you know there, there's a time and place for that and and I suppose Ireland getting into tournaments as they have done in the last however many years it, it shows that there can be success gained from that but at some point you kind of it loses its lustre you kind of want something more and if not you want to be at least proud of how your team plays. Like, it's all well and good having a, a qualification for a tournament like Euro 2012 or even Euro 2016. But, like, what good was it with the way that things turned out, especially in 2012, for instance? And, you know, to, to think that 2016 could have been a bit better considering the way we played, maybe at the start of that tournament, Wes Hulan in the team under Martin O'Neill's, it could have been a bit better than it was considering who won that tournament in the end. Yeah, like this very much comes across as a transitional uh, phase where we've just kind of had Mick McCarthy in charge for eight games. None of the eight games really mattered, but he played a few new players, gave a few players their debut. And then at the end of it, the playoffs, where the games actually really matter, we'll have Kenny in charge. And if we do get to the Euros, we'll have Kenny in charge again. And, and, and he will very much be the future of Irish football at the management level. 
so it, it, you know it was nice for McCarthy I suppose to get a bit of a send off uh, get a bit of a limelight here in Ireland again like he is a bit of a like, like he is someone that Irish people I think like I, I think we all enjoy Mick McCarthy as a character and, and it was good to have him in the press again I suppose uh, he, he was being his, his usual self and creating some some funny moments for us and I think he was maybe the right custodian to have in charge of the team while as you say everything in the background kind of went to hell uh he, he knew how to kind of handle the the pressures of that as well I think yeah uh, and then uh despite the lack of live action we have found both ways or we've both found ways of getting our sporting fix over the last few weeks so Andrew what have you been consuming to pass away the the footballless hours well there was that reddit post that you talked about a couple of weeks ago um that I've basically gone through like there's a history of football the beautiful game which is a fantastic series that's uh, Terence Stamp of uh, Neil Before Zod fame and uh, the song Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. The song is about him as well. So he's quite a famous individual. If you probably know, Most people don't even know him. But he narrates that show and it's like 12, 13 particles through the history of football. Very interesting stuff. It's a bit kind of... Uh, pastel... Well, what's the word? It's a, it's a bit uh, fluffy around the corners, you know. It doesn't really go into the... the the hard knocks of football as much as maybe it should but it's a nice little uh, trail through history um i found that to be very good i watched the neil warnock documentary from i think 2004 2005 season that followed him around um when he was manager of Sheffield united in the championship uh, or division one as i think as it was at that point and uh yeah that was an interesting thing which is him on his tractor and his wife saying he's such a nice man and then him yelling expletives at everyone left and right to him and uh, you know, doing things like uh, Bad Mountain, his former assistant manager, who'd just been hired as the Leeds boss at the time, Kevin Blackwell, who is now again uh, his right hand man in every job he's had since twenty twelve. Uh, so it was a funny, a funny documentary. I've also been consuming uh, the World Cup. Uh, just, just to go back to the Neil yeah. Warnock one, actually, have you? There was a similar one made about a late Orient. Have you ever watched that one with John Sitton? It's, I think. Was yeah, the, it's on the coach? list. It's uh, is it Orient for Fiverr or something like that? It's called. It's about the were they in the the old Division Three as it was at the time? I uh, think so. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like it's, it's a pretty depressing, uh, just lo- Orient not loitering in mediocrity and getting steadily worse as you're these footballers who while you know in a lot of ways they're the heroes of men they have achieved dreams that people couldn't only imagine of when they were a child but at the same time they're effectively still working class people who are just or you know working a job that has a very short life and uh trying to make as well as they as much as they can out of it but at the same time playing for late Orient in the mid nineties, there probably isn't much of a long-term career stretch out of that. They're not making enough money for the rest of their lives and they're getting treated like crap left, right and center. And the manager in the middle of it, a well-respected coach who was before it, just, you know, threatening them and having threatening physical violence against the players if they don't win matches. And invariably they don't win the matches. And then, you just, the guy just goes to further and further extremes and it kind yeah, of destroyed uh... his career. That uh, I haven't seen the whole thing, but I have seen the, uh, what I assume is a pretty well-known scene in it, where he's uh, particularly angry, and he just he has some of the obviously if you're in the room very threatening lines, but to watch as a viewer, they they just came across as hilarious. Yeah, uh, would not like to have been on the receiving end of them, mind you, but uh, no. I just thought they were absolutely hilarious. I thought I must watch the whole thing someday, uh, but. 
Uh, did you enjoy the Neil Warnock uh, documentary? Enjoy is a strong word. James Richardson narrated <laughs> it, so that was a bit of fun. But well, that's uh, nice. yeah, it's not the. It wasn't the best. It wasn't the most vintage. It was a bit of a oh look, this is kind of anecdotal uh, evidence of Neil Warnock just being a crazy dude. You know, he seems nice a lot of the time, and he seems to actually know what he's doing in terms of football management, which was a surprising aspect of it. Um, but at the same time, it was just kind of, uh, what's 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 this all about? Um, yeah, there's another documentary which I also watched, which was a bit more modern and a bit more like high production value, a lot longer as well. I don't know if you've had the chance to watch Sunderland Till I Die Season 2. I, I have not had the chance. I never actually watched Season 1. Is that a uh, bad thing to admit? It is quite a bad thing to admit. Sunderland Till I Die is such a great series. I just find it too depressing. It's not depressing in the slightest. It's hilarious, and you get real insight into the like, the inner workings of football. Even and a lot of it does seem staged, but it seems staged in a way that it can't have been staged. If you know what I mean. By saying it's staged, but it's not staged, do you, do you think that just means that you think people are playing up to the camera, but they are just playing like an inflated version of who they really are. Uh, probably some of them are but what's more and I don't really care for those bits you know the chairman and you're watching him and like this rich guy and he's got this the flash house and he's talking about what football means to him and blah 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 and what these guys think of club music all that stuff is fair enough but it's the player bits that are really interesting like there is a a player a young player who came from the Sunderland Academy who was featured somewhat in season one but in season two he becomes like a, a star really on the playing side of things he's the top scorer in the first half of the season and so on and so forth and he's obviously being linked away with the club because Sunderland are in League 1 so they need you know money most likely and if anyone starts playing well for them that'd be a good excuse to get away from Sunderland even if he is a youth player and the guys who are filming it and you don't hear their voices often but in a couple of cases you hear it so how are things and what's going on and have you have been reading the papers have you been seeing about the transfer speculation and the guy goes oh um what 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 transfer speculation and the the interviewer goes for you and like oh I don't read uh, newspapers. I don't, you know, doing all the cliche stuff, but in a really sly way that he knows exactly what he's doing. And it's as if, you know, the things, the stories you hear from like the likes of Robbie Savage about how players just don't talk to the manager if they want to get away from the club or who just, you know, pull up all these pretending to be injured, pretending to be sick or pretending not to be sick, pretending to be fit when they're not fit. You know, all these cliche actions of footballers they actually do happen and they've been ca- captured on film and it's 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 not fi- it's not uh fixed or you know it's not staged because you know you know that this guy actually left the club or this player actually uh was injured and stuff like this and you know you know it for a fact because it actually that happened in real life so it is kind of fun when you see the it's a bit of behind the curtain type of type of stuff yeah, that does sound uh, that sounds funny. But uh, what I don't get about something like that, like it's it's April, like we're technically still mid season. So what was what was well, the filming period like? Well, it was last season, so it's all done. It's done and dusted. So oh, okay, it was, uh, so it's the eighteen nineteen season. Yes, they're, yeah. They're, so that was that was the year they got to the the Czech Trade Trophy final. It is, and that is a that is a, a significant part of the, of the show. As is a few other encounters with Portsmouth that happened throughout the season. Portsmouth kept being played against uh, Sunderland. It happened in a variety of times, and Charlton Athletic was another one. And it it does end. It doesn't end in a Hollywood way, but it does end almost in a Hollywood way. It is very. Um, you know, the, they say that thing about, uh, I've heard it even today on, on other podcasts, uh, that's the problem with uh, fiction, You have it has to be believable. 
and that, that you don't have to worry about that with kind of non-fiction with with things like sport because anything can happen it doesn't necessarily have to be believable because it is actually happening and there is segments near the end of the Sunder Until I Die program where, where it is like how can this be happening in the precise way that you'd want this to happen for a television <laughs> program like they're going to have to go through this the motions of this they're going to get to this point and then at the end of it if you even know anything about what happened to Sunderland last season you know exactly what happens to them at the end of it and it's just so it's so made to be perfect like if you didn't know anything about Sunderland season it could be a, a fantastic watch see the problem I've had with the the idea of watching it and what's put me off is I've heard a lot of it be described as very David Brent-esque and there's just something about that kind of caricature of a of a person that I just find off-putting when I watch. Like, Yeah, I they are that's off-putting. Why I didn't, yeah. That's why I didn't really enjoy The Office as a show is I just didn't think yeah, they David don't Brent like that. was enjoyable. Yeah. yeah, and there is there is absolutely parts of that to both seasons, both the first season and the second season, even though ownership changed the end of the first season so there is a completely different set of real characters in this <laughs> in this program and they do have those David Brentisms those kind of cringeworthy uh, traits and manager speak. I like to laugh several times a day kind of yeah that's yeah it's but what's great about it is you juxtapose that with the the setting of Sunderland a, an unbelievably depressed area of northern England that has been devoid of any kind of hope other than football since before the Second World War. And they, they touch on that multiple times and they touch about the importance of the football to the club and the importance of Sunderland, not just the club, but the area and the, the people within it and the various various social economic things that affect it that kind of, it kind of tempers this kind of rich... David Brent people that are also there from the south that are involved in the or from Scotland in some cases that are involved in the in the show at the same time so kind of you get a bit of that plus you get the footballer side of things and you get um again the not so glamorous side of football because you do have a few of them that are very few footballers who are classic footballers you know they're driving their flash cars or living their high lives even if they're in the the northeast it doesn't seem like they're in the northeast but then you have other players who are kids like they're coming through the youth system they're being thrown into the first team they have the same responsibilities these millionaires who are getting premier league salaries in the championship or league one and they're getting paid apprentice costs you know they're getting they're underage they can't get a, a footballing contract and then when they do get one they get offered nothing compared to what the their teammates who aren't pulling their weight are on and you kind of it's you know these guys are effectively working class they're they're having a lot, some of them have young families and they're trying to support them they don't know if they'll have a job in a few weeks in in, in certain cases and they're playing for their livelihoods really so it is a very it's an it's a very interesting program i think it's not the best thing ever made but it is a bit of fun for a few hours that's on, that it's on and it is a bit of football action as well, I suppose, yeah. even if it is mostly off-the-pitch stuff. Yeah, there is a bit of action on the field, you know, you get to see a few yeah. goals go in. <laughs> the odd League One goal here yeah. and there. Because I, I was actually watching, and I, I sent a link to, to this to you uh, as well, the best goals in the 92-93 season. Yeah. Uh, Sky have actually just been putting up a bunch of old random clips just to pass the time. Like, they obviously see it as an opportunity to get people to watch uh, their YouTube channel, I guess. Um, yeah. But the the thing that really struck me about the 92-93 season is how many goals are scored by lobbing the keeper. I just found that really bizarre. Yeah, it seemed to be a trend that was uh, commonplace at the beginning of the of that decade. I don't know. I was thinking about it more as the week went on. And I was wondering, is it a case that you know ball technology started changing around that time? You know, they went away from the the solid leather balls of like even the even the early eighties to the more synthetic balls that would fly in the air and maybe it was a case that 
a lot of outfield players were used to kicking the ball and maybe a lot of goalkeepers were not as well used to saving those kind of flimsy poly not polystyrene but you know poly whatever uh fragment balls that kind of flew through the air and maybe that was a case that took a few years for the goalkeepers to adjust their positioning appropriately so they'd be able to actually get behind those balls i don't i don't know there was some amazing lobs like matt Letitia was doing it almost every week but it looks things ryan Giggs. mark hughes mark, mark hughes, hughes loved the lob. it's always so bizarre whenever i watch mark hughes because i know more as the beleaguered manager who, refu- who gets into a, but- a bunch of fights over handshakes yeah so it's always really bizarre when i watch any old clip of the minute and he's absolutely amazing he's got such a good goal scorer like i know this is a new information no. to listeners but uh he, he was such a wonderful a volleyer of the ball as well it's like that the one that's in that video actually i think he's two goals in that video but one of them is the ball comes up over his shoulder and he volleys it in such a way that he lobs it over the keeper uh, and it's just such an amazing finish that uh, it always blows my mind that that is Mark Hughes is the same man yeah and uh, there's a range of goals in those early days of the Premier League as well that don't really exist anymore football then was much more of a direct sport it seems than it is now it's much more tactical now it's much more tactical it's much more strategic so every goal is almost planned out in advance you know in in the ways that only you know the modern tactician managers can do it you know every attacking play is almost choreographed from the sidelines but back then it was just like go on lads crest yourselves have some fun was the instructions from the manager before you went on and it was just like oh boot it long go for it put your head in the on the line put your foot in there just have a crack all the goals are basically like that there was no team not that many there was probably one or two i think uh norwich city at the time in that first season what's the name of that guy that we always forget the name of Ro uh Roel fox scored a couple of nice team goals I think for North City that season but everyone else is just like have a crack there like a big long range header from from Alan Shearer or a big volley from Mark Hughes as you said and also there was no goals being scored by foreigners yeah like it, it, it's so easy to forget like there were because obviously we've been doing those quizzes we mentioned last week the top goal scorers like we always forget that like, there's that weird six seven year period as a few foreign players start to come in and then all of a sudden there's the huge influx around the turn of the century. So uh, it, it's been quite interesting. I was also watching the, the Brian Clough documentary. Have you ever seen that? The the one, It's on yeah, YouTube. Yeah, it's a Sky. Was it a Sky Sports documentary or was it a BBC documentary originally? Uh, I think it was BBC originally. I can't quite remember. Those. It, was, it definitely was a Sky. It might have been ITV or BBC. Uh, but it was about an hour and ten minutes long. And I just watched The Damn United a few weeks ago before uh, we were all told to stay, in, stay indoors and football was cancelled forever. Uh, and it was just interesting kind of juxtaposing the two and seeing, like, obviously the Damn United. Uh, well, what I gathered from the documentary was that uh, the book that the movie was based on was basically a book of fiction uh, that used real real characters, uh, which was yeah. quite weird because um, I'd never read the book before. Uh, and I didn't realize John Jaws had actually sued. Uh, I can't remember his name now. Oh, uh, what's his name? Yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, he sued him to get... Uh... For defamation, basically, yeah, and, and he won. Yeah, and he's been removed from subsequent editions of the book. Any reference or any of the you know the things that were referenced to John Giles were removed from the book and were not included in the film as well. Yeah, because then the film, uh, they actually talked to the filmmaker because the documentary came out just before the the, the movie did uh, with Michael Sheen, hmm. uh, who I think was a great Brian Clough as well. He just, Excellent, yeah. Yeah, he, he's, he's got the chops for it. Uh, but it was interesting they talked to the filmmaker and he was like yeah you know we're calling it after the book but really we want to make it a 
a more well-rounded movie and a well-rounded story about Brian Clough. But then they, they make up this whole stuff about how he hated Revy because of a handshake in a, in a League Cup game. And while they did play in that League Cup game, there, there's nothing about a handshake or a refusal to have a glass of wine after the match. It was just simply that Clough didn't like the way Revy played football. And, and yeah. you know, Clough, Clough was... That he was a strong-headed, strong-headed man. He, he, you know, he, he believed in his way of life. And Don Revy, obviously, you know, I, not to retread over the old ground of their rivalry, but it, it, I thought it was a good insight, both via the movie and then the documentary of uh, the mind of Clough. And like the Jam United just focuses on uh, his time at uh, Derby, but I, I quite enjoyed the stuff with Nottingham Forest as well. And uh, it, it's always weird because we, whenever we talk about Clough, we do always talk about Forrest and how that is one of the greatest accomplishments ever in, in football and maybe even just sport. But like, it's easy to forget how impressive an achievement was to win the league with Derby as well. Yeah. I and think, yeah. the remnants of his team when he left to join Leeds also won the league again with one of, uh, with a protege of, of basically of, of Clough playing the exact same brand of football, just carrying on with the exact same players. They won the league that year as well, which is often forgotten. A tiny provincial club. They're not tiny, but a provincial club like Derby County in the baseball grounds with no money, with no resources. Basically, a, a, a second division side as they were, were top of the league in the European Cup. Like That's crazy to think about. It's, Similar to what Leicester City managed to do, however many years later, with a lot less money involved. Yeah, like it is always interesting to think, like to transplant Clough into contemporary day. Like, what would be the equivalent of that happening now in so many different ways? Like, even just the equivalent of him taking over Leeds. Like, would that be like Jose Mourinho taking over Arsenal? Would it be more, less extreme? Like, the kind of managers that actually hate each other, but then one replaces the other. Uh, at their job where the, they previously done extremely well uh, in Don Revy winning uh, multiple elite titles with Leeds like uh, I, I can't think of any real equivalent other than probably Mourinho at, at well, either I, replacing Harrison Menger or replacing Pep Guardiola yeah it would have been it would have been yeah it would have been if you go back to like the height of the of the Ferguson Wenger era when Ferguson yeah. won the treble and he was meant to retire in shorts you know, in 2002 afterwards, and if Fenger had gone and been appointed as his successor in Manchester United, that would have been probably close to what happened. Or, you know, you could go back earlier and if Alex Ferguson had been appointed Liverpool manager after Graham Souness or something like that, that's that's the kind of situation you're looking at. It, it, there isn't really anything in, in modern football that can be bar- comparable. The only thing, you know, if you want a global way, if uh, Mourinho had left Real Madrid to take over Barcelona, that that would have been similar, I'd say. Yeah, and then obviously there's the main uh, achievement of going up and winning the league and then winning back-to-back European Cups. Like, the Leicester City uh, championship victory is kind of the closest equivalent. Yeah. And even then, as I say, there's a lot more money on the line or in play at the time. And they did have that year where they nearly went down uh, before that. So they had settled, I suppose, in the Premier League before that as well. Uh, not to take away from Leicester's achievement, I think yeah. that's another one of the great achievements in in sport, let alone football. Um, like it, it is funny that they're about like forty years apart. Like, will we see something else happen in, in forty years as well? Uh, if if we're still here, like yeah, if football ever comes back, uh, that is. Uh, so then, uh, were there anything else you you watched? The only things I've started getting into now, I've started listening to different podcasts. Obviously, an SM Dorman podcast I've got into, which kind of goes through 
historic events from the 80s and 90s in football and they did a a bumper like four hour special on on Mexico 86 so I've been watching a lot of stuff from Mexico 86 and they think it's the last great World Cup maybe until you're looking at maybe Brazil in 2014 but that petered out as it went on longer and longer and so it it was the last great World Cup where every single round didn't disappoint even if the final wasn't a, a, a classic it still ended in a classic fashion and is 2006 not uh, widely regarded or fondly remembered? No, it's like the same as 98. Like 2006, I think, was a return to form uh, to the World Cup uh, in the way that 2002 had been such a disappointment for the most part. Most of the nations not really fulfilling their potential. A lot of like negative football being played. A lot of uh, Tom Fuller going on. A lot of suspicious refereeing activities that happened during 2002 World Cup. 2006 kind of started with a bang, but then immediately... Like, Bar a couple of moments, obviously there's a Dan headbutt uh, in the penalty shootout, kind of in the final. Apart from that, nothing great happened in that final. It was a very uh, bad tempered but also limited chance match. Uh, the semis weren't great, apart from Zidane, really, in that World Cup and a bit of Germany, you know, really lighting up the World Cup with the great weather and the, you know, the semi final between Italy and Germany. Like a lot of that World Cup, I don't think can really be looked on that fondly. It's still a good World Cup. It's better than 2002. It's better than probably Italian 90 for quality. It's better than 94, no doubt. But, you know, in the great pantheon of, of World Cups, it's not there with 86, 86 82, 70, 74, 66. You know, I, I don't think it is. So with 2014, potentially as well, due to the heat, it kind of created a lot more open atmosphere that wasn't really present at, say, the South African World Cup in 2010, which is a very... Uh, dour affair that was won by a, a team that just absolutely obliterated all of their opposition with possession football yeah like i don't think 2010 is one that i think most people will remember fondly like it has its moments um mostly luis suarez being luis suarez like that that was the worst final uh of any competition let alone a world cup that I, I think i've ever watched anyway i i don't think but then with 2014, as you mentioned, like, I think that is pretty well remembered, even though it's only six years ago now. And it'll be interesting to see where 2018 kind of fits in that as the as the years go by. Um, but I kind of wish it was easier to go back and watch the, the matches. Like Obviously, I don't want to sit down and watch every individual match because that's a lot of football. But if there's a way to kind of well, get FIFA, a feel... FIFA have been putting up on their YouTube channel, it's FIFA TV, I think it's your, one of their official YouTube channels, have been putting up the odd classic game like they have uh, the World Cup quarter final in 86 between France and Brazil that went to penalty shootout they have the um, I think they have the World Cup finals I think from, from that era up as well um, not obviously the 1990 World Cup final which was also a horrible final <laughs> if you're talking about horrible World Cup finals the 1990-1994 World Cup finals were pretty bad as well yeah. uh, 98 wasn't even that good because it was kind of and nothing final, as it turned out. France just kind of walked all over Brazil, as it turned out. And similar to the way they did against Croatia in 2018. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a weird uh, continuation of, of that. But yeah, cert- certainly there is a, a few matches available online, and they are quite good. But yeah, I know what you mean, that they, they don't have a good highlights program or a good like, you just know. A, it's just a good way to kind of relive the tournament in, yeah. in some weird way because I saw Miguel Delaney of the Independent actually uh, he, he seemingly gotten so bored that he made a pretend World Cup where it was like all the ideal scenarios come to pass at a at, a, at a, just a random World Cup 
and just he he said uh, after he he had it published, he was like, oh, even just as I was writing it, I, I was getting excited for a World Cup that I was disappointed that it isn't happening. So like, yeah. I suppose our desperation for football continues and grows uh, yeah. as the days goes by. Even even the the journalists are getting tediously bored by it and pretending making up stories uh, of fake football tournaments yeah. to to pass the time. Uh, but I suppose we'll, we'll close out the show with uh, 20 questions, which we played last week. Uh, I had a terrible performance as Andrew had Dion Dublin picked yep. and I danced around it for about five, ten minutes. What a player. What a player Dion Dublin was. Scored it's 10 really... goals in 2003. Yeah, we learned you know, that today. You know, he still had it. <laughs> I do love that you got 19 out of the 20 players and then forgot Dion Dublin of all people. Yeah, I know. I know. It happens. It happens. Uh, but then you very quickly were able to guess Ronaldo in a, in a way that Brazilian was taunting me. Yes, the original Ronaldo yeah. as we, Large for some Ronaldo. reason, have to call him. Oh, don't be mean. He's, he's not even taller than Cristiano, I don't think. I think he's shorter than him by a fair he, bit. I always loved his nickname as E Phenomeno. Yeah. I always thought that was a very good nickname. So, uh, Andrew, have you picked a player? Oh, or, yeah, or, I have a player, yeah. Okay, so I suppose I'll start proceedings. Um, Go ahead. Is, is he a currently active player? No. Okay, has he retired in the last 10 years? No. No, okay, so has he retired within the last 30, 20 years? Yes. 20 years, so 10 to 20 years, so that's between 2000 and 2010. Yes. Um, okay, is he now a pundit on uh, British TV? Yes. Oh, unreal. This makes it way easier. <laughs> yeah, that was a good question. Um... um Okay, so did he play for more than one of the traditional top four teams of the 2010s or mm, the 2000s? No. Because he didn't play for more than one. Did he play for one? No. So he didn't play for any of the big four? Okay. No. So that's five questions. Um, I can start giving you um, facts about him. If you wish. That might... uh, was he born in the 1970s? No. Okay, so he's a 1980s kid, I'm going to guess. Um, so that would make him, what, 40? He's, he's near his 40s. Late. He's a, currently a pundit. Is he a pundit on BBC for Match of the Day? No. Is he a pundit on Sky? Yes. Sky Sports Pundit. Oh, okay. And he didn't play for any of the traditional before, so it's not Jamie Redknapp. Nope. Um, I can start giving you facts. Well, there's not that many Sky Sports pundits. I think I can I can narrow this down. It's only been eight questions. Um, is he English? Yes. He's English. Um, Don't be okay. like narrowing it down by just saying Sky Sports pundits. Have a bit no, more, you know, effort. Uh, I will. I will. I'm just trying to. I can't even. I can only think of like Gary Neville, and Jamie Carrier at the moment. Um, did he win a Champions League? Nope. Yeah. Okay. So he he would have just spent his time in England then, I assume. Um, yes. That's ten ten questions. Okay. Did, it's the most of the pundits play for the big sides, so that's, they do. Un, unless I'm completely missing an obvious person. I don't know if you are or not. Um. Did he play for Manchester City? Nope. Okay, that was a burn. That was a bad question. Um. 
Has he managed? No. Hasn't managed. Okay. Um, did he retire within the last 15 years? No. Okay, so between 2000 and 2005. Yes. Um, did he win a league title? No. Okay, it wasn't a Blackburn player. I'm just totally blanking on Sky Sports pundits now. Well, now I can start old. giving you facts. Yes, okay. So he scored 209 goals in 540 club appearances in his career. I feel like that should be giving it away. He was presumably a striker. Yes. Oh, my mind's just going blank. I'll, I, I just keep seeing flashes of Graham Souness in my head. Uh, he once uh, had a contract signed with Tottenham Hotspur but didn't didn't then sign with Tottenham Hotspur correct did he did he play for multiple mid-table Premier League clubs no did he predominantly only ever play did he only ever play at one club yes is he a Funded Off Sky Sports yes. uh, Saturday show? Is it like Matt, Matt Letizia? It is Matt Letizia. <laughs> hey, I actually got it. Well done. Well done. The other facts I had with you were um, he only missed one penalty in his whole career, scoring. Oh, I'd have got it on that. Yeah, yeah that, was... that was another one. Well, you would have got it from he was born in St. Peterport, Guernsey. <laughs> so if you <laughs> didn't get. Southampton. Yeah, it's like uh, he basically speaks French as a first language. Um, once had a trial uh, at Oxford United, but they didn't sign him. Uh, oh, that was a mistake. Yeah, he had signed a contract with Tottenham Hotspur in '91, but decided in the end to stay with Southampton. He was top scorer in the '93-'94 Premier League season from Southampton, which is quite an achievement. He has one goal the season once. He has nine caps for England, but uh, or eight caps for England, but uh, he never scored a goal for them. Interesting. I thought he had scored for England. No, not in an official. Uh, inter- he had England B caps. I think he scored for them, but official England oh, right. uh, games, no. Uh, were they your Matthew Letizia facts? They were my Matthew Letizia facts. Okay, so ask me uh, some questions then. I have my player. Okay, is the player active? Uh, no. Did they play in the Premier League? Yes. Are did they play? Uh, so they're not active. So. Did they retire in the last 10 years? Yes. Did they retire in the last five years? Yes. Um, are they a manager? No. Um, let's see. Are they English? No. Are they French? No. Um, so player that retired in the last five years, they're not English and French. English or French, but they played in the Premier League. Yep. Uh, are they African? No. Um, so that rules out GTA Drogba. <laughs> <laughs> and plenty of other players. Yeah, I know. I was just thinking of someone who retired in the last five years that was African. Samuel Leto was another one I suppose he'd play in the Premier League for Everton and Chelsea, which was a weird couple of seasons, if you remember. Or yeah, they were half the season for Everton, wasn't it? It was really odd. He did score goals for them. Um... Anyway, he scored a hat trick against Man United at one point. Yeah, it's, a, it's strange, strange times. Um, so they're not French, they're not English, they're not African. 
They've retired right. in the last five years. Are they abnormally tall? Uh, I wouldn't say abnormally. Okay. So that rules out per murder sacker. Yeah, it's not per murder sacker. <laughs> well, it's just a guess, you know? Um, <laughs> it, and they're not English, so it couldn't have been Peter Crouch, which is another abnormally tall player. Uh, had they ever won a league title in England? Um, actually, let me just check if they won that. I don't want to say yes or no for certain without. Okay, why do you check that Alaska other one? I don't think they. I don't think they did. You don't think they did? But I will double check. So a player who's retired in the last five years who don't think has won an English league. No, title. they they didn't. They didn't win an English league title. That's ten questions. Okay, so if they didn't win an English league title, did they win a league title in Spain? Um, I'll double check that. I don't think they did. Um, they didn't win a league title in Spain, but they have played in. No, they they didn't win a league title in Spain. So they've retired in the last five years. They didn't win the league title in Spain, and they played in England. And they didn't. And you're saying they didn't win a Premier League title in England as well. You also said no. Yeah, to they that. didn't win a league title in either of those two questions. In either of those two countries. But have they won a league title in their career? Um, in one of the major leagues, the five no. major leagues. So they didn't win a league title in any of the five major leagues. So they're a player without a league title that has retired in the last five years. That played in England. Also played in Spain, is not African, is not English, and is not French. Are they Spanish? They are. They are Spanish. Oh, so is it Fernando Torres? It is. Yeah, because that's yeah. Sorry, I, I kind of ruined that. <laughs> the, just, uh, the process of, of elimination. Yeah, so they're a Spanish player who hadn't won a league title, who was retired the last five years, who isn't French, who isn't African, who isn't English. Yeah, I could have. They won the Champions League with Chelsea. They played for Liverpool. They played for Atletico. They signed after Atletico had won the league. Hadn't they? He replaced uh, yeah. Diego Costa. Yeah, unfortunately. I never realised he never won a league title. Yeah, no. He was a Before hero. Fernando. He should never have left Atletico, really, in the long run. Although he did win the European Cup. But, yeah. Ah, he went some some. Yeah. Anyways, that's, that's uh, Fernando Torres. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what compelled me to pick Fernando Torres. It just, I don't know, felt might be interesting. The same thing that compelled me to pick Matt Letizier, <laughs> Yeah. Who won, who scored enough goal of the season contenders to win multiple goals of the season, but only actually won one goal of the season for scoring really? a goal against Blackburn in 1994, I think. Stiff competition every year, I suppose. Yeah, but there was one match, I think it was against Newcastle in 93 or 94, where he scored, I think he scored a hat-trick, and I think two of the three goals could have been goal of the season were goal of the season contenders it's not as good as Bergkamp though when he had all three goals in the match against Leicester yeah yeah. it was all three goals in one match I think yeah oh they all know a match I I think it was the half trick against Leicester that you know and that was the precursor to his goal against Argentina in uh, 98 quarterfinals I should have picked Dennis Bergkamp he'd have been fun yeah, but like, Dennis Bergkamp doesn't have that many interesting facts about him, really, when you think about it. he's it, like It's actually quite interesting as we do these quizzes. I keep guessing Bergkamp, and I keep, he, he keeps not turning up. Like, uh, I keep expecting him to have at least gotten 10 goals a season, but he's more getting assists, I assume. Yeah, he has a... And some of his assists aren't even counted because before they start counting assists, so they don't even know what his actual assist level is at. They only have it from, like, 96, 97 or something. Um 
but if you go back, there's an interesting story of Amy Lawrence often tells of uh, her early days, I think, at The Guardian, or relatively early days at The Guardian, and Dennis Burkamp. Maybe it wasn't early days at The Guardian, but she was there a while anyway. And Dennis Burkamp, I think Wenger must have been there, so she might have been there a few years. Uh, Burkamp, obviously, famously had a fear of flying and never flew to things. And there was a... Was it a, a match away? Arsenal playing a match away in, like, Bulgaria or Kiev or... Uh, Zagreb or some place in East, far eastern Europe that would have taken ages to get to and uh, Amy Lawrence was bored one day and wrote up an article about how you could actually travel to this country via getting this train and getting this train and getting this <laughs> train and all this sort of stuff and as it turned out uh, I think Arsene Wenger either rang up the Guardian or rang up Amy Lawrence and said are you legit about this is this actually possible <laughs> and she said yeah 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 and so Arsenal actually sent someone on a dry run to go and do this and to see if it's feasible for, for Burkamp to travel to, for this match. And, it, you know, as part of the kind of figuring it all out for Arsenal, they let Amy Lawrence was allowed, going to be allowed to accompany Dennis Burkamp and his brother to go on this long trip across Europe to go to this Champions League match. And she had everything booked and everything set up. And when she was getting onto the train, she got a, a, a phone call or something along those lines from Arsenal that was like, oh, Burkamp's picked up a knock, he's not going. Oh. So she went across Europe on the train on her own <laughs> to go watch this godforsaken Champions League group match between Arsenal and some some no hopers in Eastern Europe as they were at the time. And uh, yeah, that that's a uh, Dennis Burkamp can have massive effects in your life as it turns out. Yeah, because the best Dennis Burkamp story I remember. I know we've just kind of tangentially ended up telling Dennis Burkamp stories, but the one I love is one Van Persie told when he was still young enough at Arsenal. And he was sitting in a sauna or something, or he was sitting in a hot tub or something and he, at Arsenal's training ground. I have a vague memory of this story. Some details might be wrong. But he was watching uh, Dennis Bergkamp do shooting practice. Yeah. And he kept and he said to himself, all right, I'll get out of this sauna or whatever I'm in when Dennis Bergkamp has a bad touch. And he waited and he waited and he waited and eventually he was just like, he's never going to have a bad touch. I need to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, so that, that seems he sat about right. there for ages, but he just waited, and uh, yeah, Burke can't be he had the golden touch uh, that uh, very few players have. You know, that's uh, there's something to be said for having a bad touch once in a while, <laughs> save other people's lives. Bad touches save lives, you know. That's what they say. <laughs> yeah, ever since then, Dennis Burkamp has he followed that mantra. Uh, but I guess that is uh, that conversation is indicative of uh, what our minds are like when we have no football to discuss. <laughs> Just telling old Dennis Burkamp stories. Dennis Burkamp, you should get the the Dennis Burkamp audio bed of just the Dutch commentator shouting Dennis Burkamp, Dennis Burkamp. I think I have that somewhere. That that piece of commentary always annoys me because he says Dennis Burkamp each Milan. But he was at Arsenal at the time. Yeah, he's at Arsenal for a long time. I don't know whether there's some other... There might have been some other reference to it, or maybe he's saying words that sound exactly like Inter Milan. Who knows? Because the guy obviously knows Dennis Burkamp is. He knows he's been at Arsenal at that point for about five years. So I don't, I don't think it's... Uh, I, I don't think it could be that... I, he's actually saying that. Dennis yeah, Burkamp, Dennis just, we'll have to We'll have to ask uh, our resident Dutch speaker... Uh, yeah, you do really need to catch up with that. <laughs> Yeah, we'll have him on again at some stage, I'm sure, and we can ask him then. 
but until then, I suppose we, we have to pass the time just watching random pieces of football on, on YouTube and Netflix and whatever. Uh, so until then, thank you for being here, Andrew. Thank you for having me, Declan. And uh, yeah, we'll be back, back again to discuss something at some point. This is, this is a football show, I guess. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then don't forget you can tell family and friends about the show. Spread the word of the Total Football Takeover. You can also follow us on social media at the TF Pod on Twitter and Total Football Pod on Instagram. You can also be found on podcast services, including Spotify, by searching Total Football Podcast. The more the merrier. That's what we always say.